beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It's the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. This podcast from Michael Benner's Wisdom of the Soul class features weekly lessons in metaphysics, mysticism, and esoteric philosophy. Those who attend live and free of charge on Zoom may also participate in group meditation and Q&A. Register for our newsletter at michaelbenner.com. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Oh, good morning from the high desert of Southern California, or the, I forgot where I am, the low desert of uh, Southern California. And happy holidays. I hope you enjoyed your Thanksgiving and uh, looking forward to the holidays at the end of the year. We got a whole batch of them Hanukkah and Christmas. And of course, solstice is the big deal, right? That's what that's all about is uh, solstice. Maybe we'll talk about solstice uh, when it comes around. I want to remind you that simply by searching Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on YouTube, you can find the video, full unedited video of each of these classes. And similarly, the podcast, which is edited, uh, we pull out the meditation and the Q&A. And the podcast is also available on all players, wherever you get your podcast. Again, just search Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. The classic course is Wisdom of the Soul. And today we're going to pick up where we left off last week. and continue through some of the basic suppositions. That's what I'm going to call them. The precepts, I don't want it confused with the Buddhist precepts. And I'm not sure what else to call these uh, principles or these. They're certainly not rules. This, again, is not about dogma or any strict interpretation of anything. So I think supposition may be the best word for these principles, these keys, um, pillars, maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure what else you want to call them. So we'll do that right after the opening meditation. And uh, I still hear a few people coming in. So welcome to you folks, too. And let's do our opening meditation. If you close your eyes and relax, sit up in the chair. It's fine to use the back of the chair to support you. And three, eyes open, wide awake, back in the room. Take a deep breath, one deep breath. Feeling better than before. Eyes open, wide awake, feeling better than before. All right, good. Okay, uh, let's go back. Two weeks ago, we did the wisdom traditions of the world, and we ran down a document that we had on the screen last week and pick up where we left off, which I'll read to you again here. A unified energy source of all things, spirit, that is ultimately eternal, infinite, unchanging, and self-shining, yet which is both imminent and transcendent, the so-called one in the many, in the same way Jung's collective unconscious, panentheism, panpsychism, and monism. 
So if you were here last week, you remember that. If you were not, you can listen to the podcast or check out the video on YouTube, Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. So the second bullet point today, one of the suppositions that unifies all of these schools is the idea of unity over dualism. This is also called Advaita, no second, not two, is the best definition in English or the most common, most agreed upon definition in English for the Sanskrit word Advaita. This is often referred to as non-dualism or non-duality. I think the best way I've ever heard this expressed, and I've got to give credit to a friend of mine, Dr. Dennis Merritt-Jones. He was in studio on my radio show, gosh, 15, 20 years ago. And we were talking about metaphysics and mysticism and the wisdom traditions of the world. He came out of the religious science background, Dr. Ernest Holmes, and uh, study of the mind. That's how he moved into a more expanded idea of mysticism that emphasizes the personal experience of, uh, of oneness, of wholeness, of connection. And in the midst of this interview, he said, you know, there's only one of us here. And it was, I'd never heard it said that simply before, you know. <laughs> we talk about unity and it's all one and the philosophies and religions, one and all tend to agree that there's but one source, one God. But in the Abrahamic traditions of monotheism, you know, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, basically. That one God lives outside its creation. It's separate and lives very far away. <laughs> well, there's talk about the third aspect of the Christian Trinity, Holy Spirit being everywhere equally present. But God himself is on a throne. He's an old white guy on a throne. And uh, Jesus is at his right hand. And there's something about a big white horse. But outside those three Abrahamic religions, the rest of the world understands unity in a very different way as monism, as uh, the one in everything and everything in the one. Particularly the idea of everything in the one, that the universe is the body of this divinity, the universe is the body of God in a physical sense. So there's God's will, the Father aspect, God's love, which is the Christ, Christos, the Son, and then the Mother, which is matter, matter, the material world. We touched on this when we first began this class in February and March of this year. Not too many Christians think of it this way. They're not really taught this idea that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is really Father, Son, and Mother, and Father, Spirit is the will of God, and that the Mother is the Mater, the Madre, <laughs> the Mater in Latin, the, the material world, receptive to the Spirit, right? Just like nature. The male of the species is causative, and 
the female is receptive. So these are polarities, like on a bar magnet. But the magnetic field that unifies spirit and matter, father and mother, God's will and his manifestation as separate forms, that middle element, that magnetic field that unifies the poles is God's love. That's what Christ represents. That's what Buddha represents. And it's not emotional love, it's consciousness, it's awareness, which is the focus of the wisdom traditions. We're developing higher consciousness. We're developing expanded awareness. So it's important to be aware of the nature of unity, not only because it contains the Trinity, but because our minds are naturally dualistic. And perhaps it comes from gender, although that's being challenged now. We're seeing gender is more fluid than the physical body itself would suggest. I think, even go back to Jungian psychology, he talked about every single individual having an anima and an animus, which is like a male and a, and a female aspect. So everybody has male energies and female energies, and gender suggests duality. A polarity suggests duality. All spirit, all energy vibrates. That's what energy does. It oscillates. It has an amplitude. How high the peak, how deep the trough. And it has frequency, how often it does that in a given unit of time. Cycles per second, right? Or we're talking about the solstice uh, cycles per year. This takes you into astrology. and The seasons and the phases of the moon. The cyclic nature of things suggests that there is a crest or a peak and then a trough. Just imagine stretching a rubber band and you pluck the rubber band and it vibrates, right? So how high it, how low it goes, that's the amplitude. How quickly it does that is the frequency. So electromagnetism has a dualism to it. Gender, electromagnetism. We have two hemispheres in the brain that are quite different. <laughs> I've talked to some neurologists about this. If you ever were able to hold a brain, I'm not sure you would want to, but a close examination of these hemispheres of any given brain, you're going to see that they're physically different, as well as the operations of the left brain and the right brain being different. And yeah, they're connected, obviously. There's a corpus callosum, this bundle of nerves that uh, connects the two. And uh, there's a cortex over the human brain, and a few other animals have a cortex that helps to unify it into one thing. But again, we have this basic two-ness. Where we get into trouble, and the reason I'm dwelling on this a little bit, is binary thinking. Binary thinking is a trap. 
It's a curse. It's a pox on humanity. It's the idea that the, everything is either true or false. It's a function of absolutism. And people who think of themselves as conservative, or who others might describe as basically reactionary, cling for dear life to the idea of absolutism. It's absolutely this way, or absolutely that way. How else could it be? Are you coming with us or staying behind? There's no middle, there's no in-between. Did they win the game or lose the game? Oh, it was a tie? <laughs> People don't like ties. So it's usually a winner or a loser. Are you a good guy or a bad guy? Come on, there's no middle. Half bad is still bad. 90% good, you're only 10% bad, you're still bad. You can't be partly good and not bad. There's no middle. And it's frustrating as hell. I see it in journalism over and over and over in really smart people who should know better. I studied journalism in college. I taught journalism in college at Mount San Antonio College here in Southern California. That's rarely discussed. I've never seen it mentioned in any journalism textbook. This tendency to think in terms of either or. And if you listen carefully, you'll see it again and again and again. News anchors and field reporters alike. Well, is it this way or that way? I mean, here's the debate. We have an energy situation. Are we going to burn coal and fossil fuels or go nuclear? Those are your only two choices. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> Isn't there solar and geothermal? Aren't there permutations and variations and combinations? Well, most people don't even know what a permutation is. In school, we had true and false questions, but as you move through elementary school and the middle school and high school, we went beyond true or false to multiple choice. And at least there, you get more than two, in most cases, three options or four options. Sometimes there was none of the above or all of the above. I really like the test where the instructor would say, be careful, there's on some of these, more than one right answer. That was always a mind blower for me. How could there be more than one right answer? That violated everything that I had learned in school previous to that point, in my socialization, my enculturation, and certainly in the church. You're born in the image of God, but you're a sinner. You're good and perfect, just like God, but you're really bad and horrible and likely to burn in hell. Arguably, the Catholic Church had a middle for a while, this so-called purgatory, but nobody ever really understood that. It was made up like so many things out of whole cloth. And, uh, I don't know, 15, 20, 25 years ago, I lost track. They dropped that whole idea of some in-between place, some hellish waiting room before you're qualified or purified enough to, uh, to live in heaven. 
Is it this way or that? Here's another way of saying it. All differences are opposites. All differences are opposites. No, that's not true. This absolutism leaves no room for its complementary view, which is relativism. And again, the right-wing conservatives, reactionaries, bristle at the idea of relativism. They, they hate it. It terrifies them. They want to live in a world that's black or white, not both. Forget the colors. Forget the permutations, the combinations, the variations. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, a drop of this, a dash of that. It's anxiety-producing. That's terrifying. The absolutist is holding on for dear life to binary thinking. And I'll share with you, I may have in the past, but at the risk of repeating myself, it's in my book as well, Fearless Intelligence. The example that I've used for years, there are others, but I love this one. I think it's easy to understand the truth of relativism. If you consider um, the way I told the story in my book was uh, uh, I have a friend from Hawaii and a friend from Alaska visiting me in Los Angeles. And uh, like today, it's a little chilly. It's about 65 degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, the guy from Alaska is just loving it. Oh, your weather down here is just wonderful. Hey, Mind if I take my shirt off and enjoy this balmy day? It's almost 70 degrees outside. God, what a nice day. I love Southern California. I got to come here more often. Meanwhile, my friend from Hawaii is freezing. He asked for a sweater, maybe a jacket. Says, I don't know how you guys handle this cold weather. I'm freezing. Well, if you're conservative or a reactionary, if you're an absolutist, one of these guys is wrong. They disagree, so they cannot both be right. I was watching, actually, I was watching just a couple of days ago, this uh, religious minister called himself a doctor. I guess he was a doctor of uh, religion, whatever. I'm not even sure what that means, but some of these uh, preachers do get uh, PhDs from some kind of seminary or not. So he was a doctor, so that gave him more credibility. And he said uh, he was running the same rap. He said, two things cannot be different and both be true. One could be true. They could both be false. But if one's true and the other is different in any way, even in the slightest way, it's wrong, it's false, it's bad, it's evil. Because this one here is true. And you can't have two things that are different and still both be true. Nonsense. Of course you can. <laughs> to the Hawaiian, 68 degrees is cold. The Alaskan finds it warm. Neither one of them is wrong. Now, take this to politics, where we only have two ways of thinking in politics liberal and conservative, or progressive and reactionary. of two political parties, essentially, Republican and Democrat. Most people believe there are only two conceivable economies. 
capitalism and socialism. And the extremes would be fascism, authoritarianism, and communism, both of which are prone toward totalitarianism or authoritarianism. What is this binary thinking? Only two economies, really? So we have to send troops to Korea in the 1950s to fight a war, shooting at strangers over economic ideas? And then repeat the mistake in Vietnam over economies because of some silly domino theory and a fear that the whole world was going to go uh, communism, which would be authoritarian, and capitalism is free market. I think we all know free enterprise and capitalism are two very different, <laughs> two very different things. Monopoly capitalism, cartel capitalism, winner-take-all capitalism is not free enterprise. But by conflating the two, we can also conflate it with the idea of freedom as liberty. So in order to be free and democratic people, we have to have a free enterprise system, which I love. I love the idea of free enterprise. But cartel capitalism is a distortion of that. And yet, how many people in the world would say, well, there's got to be a third way. There's got to be a, a fourth option, a fifth possibility. Aren't there different ways of, of doing economy? Couldn't we find something in the middle? Well, we already have. Uh, America may be a monopolistic, capitalistic, winner-take-all. I mean, there's only five companies that own everything, right? Five companies own the media. All your food comes from five companies. All the meat comes from four companies. How many energy companies are there? Six? It used to be the seven sisters. I think maybe effectively five now. This is nothing free about that. But if you're locked in dualism, this binary thinking, there's only two ways anything can be. It's a curse. It's a mental trap. We have to be smarter than this. And so, too, with politics, the Republicans and the Democrats getting more and more extreme. Republicans getting more extreme. Liberals are getting more extreme. There's some of this cancel culture stuff that is way, way off the rails. So the beauty of it in a free society is that you have this whole spectrum in the middle. A little of this and a little of that blended. I mean, are not the interstate highways an application of socialism? Uh, public schools is not, not socialism? Parks, national parks, is that not socialism? So... <laughs> Obviously, there's a third way and a fourth possibility and a fifth alternative and a sixth way of looking at things. And yet, here's the bottom line as we round third in the head for home. Binary thinking is a product of anxiety and stress and fear. So the more anxious, the more nervous, the more terrified, the more panicky, <laughs> well, I'm not frightened, Michael. I have my concerns. I'm a little 
you know, wary of this or that. Well, whatever term you use for it. Anxiety, stress, tension shatters awareness and promotes binary thinking. And if you think about why that would be so, how we evolved in that way, it's the fight or flight response. Anxiety is fight or flight. Fear is fight or flight. Stress, tension result from the fight or flight response being triggered, not by danger, but simply by confusion and things unknown, at the center of which is the self. It's us that we don't know and understand. That's what we're afraid of. We're afraid of ourselves because we don't know the self. That shatters awareness. It destroys insight and understanding when we most need it. When we think there's only two and can't find a third or a fourth or a fifth alternative, that stresses us out. And so either or thinking is appropriate if there's real danger hidden in or hidden by what we don't know and what we don't understand about the world, but primarily about ourselves. And so this whole wisdom tradition, all these mystery schools ultimately are about consciousness, awareness, developing it in such a way that we can become fearless. That's my book, Fearless Intelligence. And expand our awareness, raise our consciousness, enhance our understanding, our insight, and our access to wisdom and truth, profound understanding when we need it. So, in all of its forms, beware of binary thinking. It's either this or that. Because if nothing else, it's a sign of stress and anxiety. It's, your, your brain is shut down and cannot think in relative terms. But you're either with me or against me. You're either good or bad. You're, you're either right or wrong. And don't come at me with these maybes and these sort of this and a little of that because that scares me even more. I want to know, are you on my side? Are you not on my side? You ever heard that phrase, um, how's it go? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's not true, is it? <laughs> Aren't there situations where three or more groups are involved and they're all everybody's enemy? Uh, it's rarely true that the enemy of your enemy can be trusted to be your friend. Best not to have any enemies at all. The ultimate en enemy, of course, is fear. I like Gandhi's quote about that. He said it very clearly and directly. He said, the problem is not hate. We think it's hate. We think it comes out of anger, but the real problem is the fear at its root. And what is fear? An indication of danger? No, it's an indication of ignorance and confusion. And it's a vicious cycle that goes round and round. Ignorance is scary. But that fear promotes ignorance, puts you into this either-or mentality. Now. I want to go to the questions in just a second, but let me tie this into uh, the next point that I wanted to make. 
So I'm going to go back to this document just for a second. And you'll see right below unity over dualism, this next bullet point, which we'll talk about more next week. Love wisdom is the path connecting man to God, an aspirational longing known as divine homesickness, and the middle way. We did a whole class on the middle way a few weeks ago. So this path, the path of love, the path of wisdom, the path of consciousness, the Christ consciousness that stands between the Father's love and the Mother's material nature, the receptivity of spirit into matter. That middle is how you break open the dualism that we've been discussing today. It denies it. It's why three is such an important number. It's this middle way that unifies the apparent opposites of spirit and matter, God and man, heaven and earth, into one whole thing. And so that's what I want to talk about next week. We'll touch a little bit on the middle way. And then the next bullet point is harmony over conflict, cruelty, hostility, and violence. By means of compassion, kindness, de-escalation, nonviolence, and forgiveness. And here's your trinity again. Unity and diversity are connected by harmony. And I could use any one of a dozen or more versions of that trinity. But uh, you can see why this is esoteric material, right? This is not for the casual observer. You really have to be committed and devoted to wanting to understand things. But look at the freedom of being able to escape, to transcend the either-or madness of the world. The divisiveness that set families against each other. Like the Civil War, brother against brother, literally shooting hot lead at each other over ideas because of an inability to find harmony in the relative. A little of this and a little of that is a good thing. <laughs> we can have both. Again, the reactionary is terrified by both or all. Let's all get together. See, I think this is huge. I think this is as all-encompassing as it could possibly be, as, as inclusive as it gets to break out of the, the chains of either-or thinking and immediately begin to look in every situation for the third way, the middle way. And that will lead you, like the rainbows between black and white, to a fourth alternative, a fifth possibility, a sixth variation, a seventh permutation, and on and on and on. That's goodness, truth, and beauty. The either-or, the all-or-nothing. Well, you're either coming with me or you're staying behind. That's, that's rare. It, it exists. There are situations that are binary, either-or, 
one way or the other, but that's the exception. It's rare. God, don't limit yourself to that. Don't get in arguments. I mean, the basic domestic argument is two people trying to get heard and understood by winning an argument, which means the person you love has to lose an argument. And if you're successful and you win an argument with your spouse or your partner, the relationship loses. There is no winning, right? <laughs> right. If either of you lose, the relationship suffers. So why do we do it? This is another, really leads to another theme, another class for another day. But the harmony in that, that middle way between unity and diversity, that, that path. Remember Christ said, I am the way? Or the path is often discussed in spiritual literature. That's, that's what we're talking about. Is in the domestic argument, for example, or it could be a, a, a boss and an employee at work or two people in a bar having an argument over a football game. The alternative to winning the argument or trying to win an argument by making the other one lose is to understand. And the way you get understood is to understand the other, be the leader. Put your agenda down long enough to listen to them and then play it back. Say, you know, I don't agree with you, but I want to make sure you feel heard and understood. You know that's all they want. Or you now, <laughs> you can now consider that's all we want is to be understood. If, if the person you're arguing with tells you, I understand how you feel. I understand what you're saying. I understand your position. I have a different view, which I'll, maybe I'll get to tell you about in a minute here, but I understand what you're saying. I think you you got a point. You know, I, I could give you 10 or 20% on that, but I think my argument is like 80% true. <laughs> You'll probably disagree. What we really want is to understand, but this chemical binary nonsense generated by fear and stress and anxiety, shattering awareness and consciousness makes it so difficult and we retreat to dualism. That's what I wanted to present to you today. So can you think some, of, of some examples where you've been trapped by binary thinking, by dualism, where you denied a variation or permutation, a combination, an alternative view, 